Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Krupp. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week on the podcast, we talked about an American filmmaker like no other, Melvin Van Peebles. Known for groundbreaking classics like Watermelon Man and Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song, Van Peebles invented entirely new cinematic languages while offering trenchant visions of Black American life and masculinity. In 1968, the director made his feature debut with The Story of a Three-Day Pass, a dazzling, multi-layered film about an African-American soldier's dalliance with a white Frenchwoman in Paris. With the film returning to screens this week in a brand new restoration, we reached out to two Van Peebles superfans, filmmaker Ephraim Asili, director of The Inheritance, and writer and film editor Blair McClendon. Today, I am really excited about the two guests we have joining us. Uh, both of them, you know, fans of Melvin Van Peebles, who's the subject of today's podcast. And both of them work in film, like beyond criticism. So excited to hear their take uh, on, these, on these really pioneering works. Uh, so our first guest is Ephraim. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, uh, I'm Ephraim Asili. Uh, I am first and foremost very happy to be here. Um, I'm a filmmaker. Um, I've been making films, I don't even know for how long now, but I'll just say over a decade. And um, I also uh, teach film studies and film production at Bard College, um, and amongst other things. But those are my main activities related to this discussion. And Ephraim, if you don't know, uh, is the director of The Inheritance, which I'm sure you must have heard of this last year. It played at the New York Film Festival. Uh, I believe it's still currently playing in the Film at Lincoln Center virtual cinema and other uh, virtual cinemas. Highly, highly encourage you to check it out. A big favorite of ours here at Film Comment, for sure. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> And our other guest is someone you've heard from on this podcast recently. Diehard uh, fans. <laughs> I already know. A regular already. Uh, Blair, go go for it. Uh, yeah, I'm an editor of films uh, and filmmaker and uh, writer as well about arts and politics, I guess. All right. Well, thank you both very much uh, for joining us. You know, it's, I think... The story of a three-day pass, which is what which is what has occasioned uh, this podcast. I just saw it a few days ago. I mean, first of all, I didn't even know about it, which was crazy. I mean, I didn't know that this film existed. I didn't know anything about it, and you know, I of course I knew about Sweet Sweetback's badass song and you know Watermelon Man, but this was apparently Melvin Van Peebles' first feature and made in such strange circumstances too. You know, I mean, the way he moved to France. Uh, wrote all of these novels and then kind of adapted one of his novels. And it's just, it's made in 1968, which is, you know, the big year, you know, the year of protest and political change and artistic kind of uh, reinvention and so much great work coming from France, uh, particularly at that time. And so this completely took me by surprise as something that seemed part of that tradition, but also kind of different, uh, a, different perspective on it. But before we dig into that film, I actually have a question for Ephraim. 
I know that I, we've spoken a couple times about the inheritance and each time you brought up Melvin Van Peebles and Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And one thing that I remember you said was, you know, we were talking about revolutionary art and if it's possible to make revolutionary art. And you said something like, no, you know, that's not something I necessarily aspire to. There's very few works that count as revolutionary art. And you named Sweet Sweetback as one of those few. Uh, which was really fascinating to me. And I, I, I was wondering if you could start us off by talking about, you know, why uh, that film feels like particularly radical to you and also what it's meant to you, your own practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, that one stands out because, um, well, for a number of reasons, uh, but mostly where I make that distinction as it relates to Sweetbacks is what it, what it, what it did outside of, um, sort of like uh, even intellectually for, for filmmaking, what it did as a sort of model for production uh, for people coming kind of after that and people who are making work around the same time, you know, say like in third cinema. So it was kind of like, um, like the American version of that. And so it was a very empowering thing that he did uh, in terms of just kind of getting out there and doing it and putting himself out there and then adding to that the whole story of, you know, knowingly making this uh, um, with the knowledge that it was a violation of a contract and that, you know, this could cost him a career and he did it anyway. Um, and so just in terms of what he put into it, you know, but for anything to kind of rise to the occasion, I would say of being like revolutionary and actually doing something, it has to be like accepted by other people, right? And so, you know, when you look at the social impact of, of, of Sweetback and you look at, you know, you know, a whole um, um, publication of the Black Panther newspaper, you know, dedicated to the film, et cetera, and it's being used as a way of kind of, uh, as an instructional tool and all these sort of things. Um, when you put all that together and you look at what kind of came after that, um, it's hard to not look at it as, as revolutionary. You know, just uh, just so people have, you know, people may not have the background about how it was made. You referenced uh, the production of it and sort of the violation of the contract. Could you just tell us a little more about that for people who, who, who just may not know? It might even be good to kind of do a thumbnail sketch of like, um, his life up to the point up to because he lived such a incredible life yeah totally totally i mean yeah what a guy you know and that you know so even at the point where you pick up that story of like he's directing watermelon man already there's a whole story and i guess that's what we get into the story of the three-day pass but essentially he had you know quote unquote made it you know um and it was kind of being uh groomed to be looked at as a sort of you know one of the first blacks kind of you know fill in the blank scenarios and, uh, and he was with Watermelon Man, right? Along with uh, Ozzie Davis and uh, Gordon Parks, right? They were all kind of came out as a trio to kind of like finally, you know, give some uh, color to Hollywood. And, um, and, you know, and he made a film, you know, made it, made good money for them on the film with a very small budget. And basically rather, he had a three, three, uh, three films that he could make uh, under his contract. He finished one. And basically with it was Columbia like a, Studios, right? Columbia, Columbia Studios, Pictures, right? right. Yeah, Columbia yeah, yeah. Pictures and left and went out and made this independent film, uh, what they call in the industry a passion film, you know. Um, um, and so he, he made his passion piece instead. And, um, you know, 
and it was just kind of like what happened happened. Uh, but essentially, he lost his contract and was essentially blacklisted uh, from Hollywood and moved to New York. And then there's yet another sort of series of episodes that go on. And so the sort of slice of life that we're looking at with him, it's like, you know, if any normal human being, those two films would be like plenty to talk about. But with him, it's like they're actually just a couple chapters, you know, um, in this crazy story. Uh, but essentially, yeah, that he was already in, in, in the industry, he was already embedded and kind of walked away from it. It's very different than kind of already being on the outside, not having access to Hollywood and say, I'm going to go out and do it because, you know, I have nothing to lose. He had everything to lose and lost it all to make that film. Although he did, you know, in perfect moment event people's fashion, made a lot of money in the process, you know, so it's kind of a, what a story, you know, again. That just seems, sort of seems like his M.O. throughout his life, that he just would do things the way that he was going to do them, and he would do them by himself. Like, he does... He, that's the other thing about his work, is that he he wrote, he directed, he composed the music, he acted. He basically did everything, and he learned how to do it all himself. I was reading some interview with him where he says, like, the actual hard part is the, is the financial and technical aspects for me. Like, that's... Or that that's where things got like difficult and I actually had to like put in a lot of work, but it's just like, he's like an indefatigable force and just kind of, uh, but yeah. Blair, uh, do you have a memory of when you encountered his films first or particularly uh, Sweetback? And I'm also wondering if you can tell people a little, like a little about the premise of Sweetback. <laughs> we, did, we didn't get into that. So. Yeah, maybe we should just do a quick uh, premise of Sweetback. What a task! What a task! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how you do that. <laughs> I'll, I'll do Sweetback. Okay. <laughs> it's the story of this orphan who is taken in into a brothel. Basically, grows up in a brothel and then becomes an actor in kind of a sex show. Some cops come into the brothel and kind of need some, a patsy to like put, bring into the station for some kind of performative thing with their chief, and they're like, oh. They are friends with the guy, with the pimp or whoever, the guy running this sex show. And he's like, oh, you can take Sweetback. So Sweetback goes along with them. And then uh, they get called up to some sort of violent altercation, who I believe is called Momo. If I'm, oh, if I Mumu, yeah, yeah. Mumu, yeah, Mumu. And then the cops take Mumu out to a field and are like working him over and just beating the crap out of him. And Sweetback kind of uh, loses it and like goes wild on the cops frees Mumu and then um, hits the road. Then basically the movie turns into kind of a extended abstract chase where he definitely damages more cops along the way. I can't remember if he kills anybody, but I think he might kill a couple, a couple of cops in at some point. Um, and then it's really out there. Like the editing is just, which is kind of why I was really excited to hear Blair talk about this. I feel like the editing and this and three day pass are just like, a whole new way of doing things. Um, but the story, yeah. So the story is really told through these, this crazy editing style. And this chase is just kind of this, uh, really just like an abstract series of images and like brief moments. And like, there's not much dialogue really. You kind of catch glimpses of things that he's doing and then it'll be on to the next thing. And you see there's this, this score is constantly just churning in the background. Um, the score, but composed by Melvin Man Peebles, performed by Earth, Wind, and Fire, I think, who were not very popular at the time, but this was like an early project for them. And um, 
and yeah and he as he makes his way south to the to the border and you know i don't want to give away the ending but <laughs> i just want to make sure like if people haven't seen it it is such a strange film it is incredibly <laughs> strange yes i was idiosyncratic <laughs> i mean I also realized that Sweetback doesn't say anything in the film except I think one line when uh, he's presented a choice between, you know, these guys come to, I guess, take him away and it's either him or Mumu, I think, comes back at that point and he says, take the other guy. And well, other when than he's that- choosing the weapons too, like how what sort of fights he's going to have with the... Uh- the chosen warrior of the hell's angels that they get that they have in. <laughs> oh yeah, wait, uh, that's with. another crazy episode. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, he barely speaks. He's just the cipher. Oh, and of uh, course, know, even I'm he... not sure if we said this, but Sweetback is played by Melvin Van Peebles, who is right. like a pretty small guy, and so he's just this like badass little guy just running around. Yeah, and his younger self is played by Mario Van Peebles, his son in. An incredibly disturbing opening scene, which I'm just mulling over the fact that he cast his own son in that. And that's already like, I don't know. I mean, clearly um, there's a desire to provoke, but not just for the sake of provocation. There's just a kind of very transgressive impulse. I mean, there's so much public sex in this movie too. Obviously it opens at a brothel and there's this, I mean, incredibly elaborate scene of you know two women performing you know this performing this whole kind of uh, skit that ends in one of them pegging the other and there's like so many even that that road show that Clint is talking about somehow ends with another you know the, the conquest is you know you have sex well that's like Sweetback's like superpower on some yeah. in some way is uh, yeah. yeah and that's it's cool. I don't know it's it's like I guess it is it's a black spoiled it's a black exploitation film or it's regarded as such, but I don't know. I don't even know if it fully fits that label. I mean, there's these elements of, um, like I said, transgression and, you know, almost like body horror type bits. I mean, there's just a, a very crass element to it. And I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily mean that in a pejorative way, you know, there's this like very carnal and crass element to it. And at the same time, this, genre uh and this like political side of it where it's very much a critique of the police that seems off the moment like from you were saying it's really speaking to things that were happening at the time i don't know i'm just puzzled by it in a very pleasant way like it doesn't fit any boxes uh any preconceptions i have um but blair i'm i want to know what what your experience of the film is yeah, I mean, I I had heard of it for a very long time. I feel like I'm not even sure when at this point and how old I was. I could have been a child or something when I heard of it. And it is one of those things that like had such a long afterlife in the culture that like even just the stylization of Sweet Sweetback's badass song, like you see that stylization in places. Um, but I think as like a kid, I because I hadn't seen it, wasn't certain that it was separate from Shaft um and so I was just like oh there was like something that happened at this moment and like maybe the first one's called Shaft and the second one's Sweet Sweetback uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh not true for our listeners but it's very now. different than Shaft. <laughs> very different um so yeah so for a very long time I like I hadn't seen it because I thought I had seen it because I had seen Shaft um and then when I was a teenager which was sort of when I got heavy into just watching pretty much 
anything I could. And I think very luckily didn't really have anyone to guide me. So I really was just like, well, this is in front of me. So I will watch it now. Um, I happened to watch uh, Sweet Sweet Pack and Story of a Three Day Pass like right at the same time that I was watching all the French New Wave stuff. Uh, so it actually like, read very reasonably to me as like, well, mm -hmm. yeah, of course, like everybody was apparently doing this. Uh, mm -hmm. And then it wasn't really until I started watching what the other Americans were doing at the time that I was like, what the hell was Melvin Van Peebles up to? Um, yeah. Which is, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's what's, and I think you're right that it's like, what's interesting about trying to fit this into its moment of black exploitation is just like how singular an artist he is. Uh, and so it's like, it has some of the home. And like, if you watch this back to back with Shaft, there are reasons to like relate them to one another, but like- What year was you know, Shaft? Yeah, yeah, just to clarify. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Shaft was some years later. So, yeah. Yeah. so that, you know, in terms of it being singular, it's because there was no, it, right. it's not that it is a black, it's not a black exploitation film because there was no such thing at the time. Exactly. Um, so, you know, he, it, you know, made a thing that became a genre um, um, later. But with, with, what's interesting in terms of, uh, for me, in terms of Shaft, is to look at the three films, right? So you have these three uh, Black directors all given the, the chance basically mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, to make these films. And uh, Gordon Parks makes The Learning Tree, right? Um, and which is a, a beautiful movie. I, I love The Learning Tree, uh, great movie. Um, but he doesn't get the street cred from Learning Tree that that uh, Melvin gets from, you know, he becomes like an icon superstar from his yeah. film. Um, and then look at the kind of response uh, from from the others. And so, you know, it, it, it's interesting uh, kind of looking, I think, at those two films in, uh, in particular. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I've seen this in interviews with Melvin and people's where he says, well, you know, in my film, look at who the hero is, you know, the sex worker who does this mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, but then you look at the so-called genre of black exploitation, and you know, nine or ten times out of ten, uh, it's going to be a drug dealer and/or cop, or some combination, like a private detective. Is always the, and that's what gets championed in sort of in the aftermath of of, of, of Sweetback. But at the time, you know, he was like, you know, he's my favorite because it's just like the kind of art, like with both films, that people who just like he really doesn't give a fuck with other people, think yeah. black, white, whatever. It's like he's making his stuff and. And it's off-putting or it's strange to look at because you can't read any sort of like clear political predictable delineation just when you think you've got him figured out he's like actually i'm gonna go over here and over there and it's it's, it's quite confusing i think in some ways um the other thing i just wanted to add to that that um in terms of these critiques that he's bringing um that i feel like we don't talk about a lot is there's also in terms of the sex and the kind of approach like it wasn't like that was the only idea he had but i think it is very much about upsetting you know sensibilities particularly like middle class upper middle class again regardless of race you know mm -hmm. um when you listen closely to the soundtrack with the angels right he's very much right he's preaching to the black bourgeois it's not about white people it's actually about the sort of you know certain kind of approach to i'd say politics that he's seeing just even within the black community well, and that you see that too in the like, there's that tagline in it where it's just like starring the black community, right. which like is oh, yeah. such a fascinating thing to do for like you're saying exactly who's in this movie compared to who's in all the other black movies you sort of get in the aftermath of this one, where like 
I mean, this is a phrase you hear again and again, where it's like black community, but you like sit and think through it and you're like, well, is this the, like the black community that's showing up in this stuff? <laughs> or are we talking about like a subset of that? Which is like, like that, like right off the bat is already a provocation because it's like so much of his stuff is about the people who, who are doing better in the black community would in fact exclude from that depiction. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Although he was happy to go get money from that. So this film, like you said, Ephraim earlier, uh, was really adopted by the Black Panthers, right? It was made required, required viewing. And I'm curious, kind of, you know, what about this film um, you think that struck such a powerful chord? Of course, some some aspects are obvious, but it is such an avant-garde film. You know, it's not didactic at all. It's not, you know, what you really think of as uh, pedagogical or even necessarily as like political or social realist or all those other kinds of cinemas that you usually associate with some kind of educational, you know, radical educational impulse. The story itself is not necessarily like political. Or it's like the same story as it's like just like a guy on the run kind of right. thing. So I'm just curious, like what 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 in there you think just was so captivating for those audiences? Yeah, I think it, it all actually hinges on this whole thing of sex, you know, um, and how we think of sex and what is sex um, and what does sex mean in different communities and how do people, you know, uh, feel about it, which, you know, really gets to when you really think about it, sort of like a very core you know, um, issue in terms of what we think of as, say, being like Western culture uh, as compared to, say, you know, more indigenous, like, say, African cultures or African-American culture, where people are much more open, you know, in, in many, you know, indigenous cultures about sex and sexuality in the body. Um, and it's overtly political in a way that who would dare pretend that, you know, sex and sexuality isn't partially transactional and very, very political. Uh, but it's in mm. European culture, right, Victorian culture, where, you know, it's this compartmentalized thing, you know, that exists somewhere else, right? And so the fact that he's kind of going in on that, I think, is really key. And then coupling that, I think, like, there's this whole issue. And this is true of Story of a Three-Day Pass as well. Um, I have this, I've never heard him say this um, uh, it's alluded to in uh, his documentary about film history. Um, um, uh, Melvin and Peoples that he made. Uh, but essentially, I think he's very deliberately being the uh, anti Sidney Portier, you know, and knowing that there are people watching Sidney Portier and going like, you know, pardon my French, but why didn't this like fuck the girl or whatever the case may be? It's like, oh, a little peck, you know, so forth and so on, referring to like, um, you know, guess who's coming to dinner, which was essentially mm -hmm. at, least at the same time as a story with three day pass. And so point being is that it, when you look at the history of cinema as it relates to black men, and it's hard to understand, and I teach this film to young people, and they, the politics of today are very different, but black male sexuality was forbidden, right? No matter how mm -hmm. much the star in a film was, you know, a sexual representation of blackness, Paul Robeson, and Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, they're all very strong, handsome men that people are looking at and saying, well, that's a handsome, attractive guy. But through your history, you never see them involved in anything that is sexual in nature, um, other than obviously something that might be read as a rape, right? And so just the act of saying like, I'm gonna have a film where there's like a black male phallus as the main 
like narrative driving force and this symbol like it's it's a very it 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 almost like the film had to in, in my opinion like it couldn't have been any other occupation right and so as it relates to kind of the black panther read on it i think that that element right there is really important um in that it requires one to kind of look at it from the point of view of um black men of that window of time but all black people when you look back there are a lot of women who also we're excited to see a black man being able to be sexually, you know, alive in a, in a film. You didn't see that happening at that time. Um, and so once you kind of kind of look at sex as more of like the symbolic nature of it. And um, as we we're talking about before this idea that that Sweetback is a sex worker uh, with supernatural skills uh, at sex. Right. And so he has this thing. Um, that he can do really well, you know, another way it's like, it's like, that's his, like John Henry, right? And he's, that's his hammer, but rather than dying, right? It's like, he always, you know, can outwork the train, right? He can beat the machine with his, his skill. And so I think it's that whole theme of like self-reliance and just taking this thing that has been stripped away from you. And that's the exact thing that you're going to use as a sort of weapon. And so when you read the, uh, Huey Newton's analysis, he's basically taking that premise and saying, in every scene, how is this person getting by strictly on the environment and what was provided to him by his community, um, in this case, the other sex workers, right, um, to, to, to survive. And so it's like the ultimate sort of like uh, survival story um, in, in a way, you know. Um, and so I think that that's the thing when you relate that, especially to the politics of the time, this thing where, um, well, the one of the arguments for not having this sort of like certain kinds of black masculinity on screen is that the power structure is alarmed that these people might get hostile and violent and not take so much bullshit out in the streets, right? And so, you know, there's a relationship there between sex and violence, right? And so uh, Melvin Peoples is really stoking that and, 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 and Huey Newton being literally the genius that he was immediately, maybe even I'd say more so than Melvin Peoples knew exactly kind of how it was operating or what he was kind of getting at. And so uh, that analysis of the film, it, it's like some of the greatest film analysis like, like I've ever read. I wish he wrote like books of film analysis, Huey Newton, that is, you know, it's like, it's really something. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, not to get ahead, uh, it's the other movie, but it's like, I think you're so right that the sexuality is so key because rewatching Story of a Three Day Pass, uh, reminded me that, um, I think it was United Artists that did Paris Blues like six or seven years before Story of a Three Day Pass which, you know, is Sidney Poitier and um, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodard. Uh, and it's it was supposed to be an interracial romance um, with Sidney Poitier winding up with the white girl and Paul Newman winding up with the black girl. And United Artists was like, absolutely not. <laughs> like, like, just because they're in Paris doesn't mean we're going to go crazy. Uh, <laughs> And so they wind up going, you know, back to Paul Newman's with the white girl and Sidney Poitier's with the black girl. Um, and Louis Armstrong's in it too, being himself kind of. Um, but it's like watching those like back to back with each other, it's like so shockingly clear, like how much, even if he's not quite aware of it, like how much he is using his character sexuality as the like driving force through it in a way that even this movie that is like about a love story with these Americans in Paris listening to jazz that like this American company couldn't bring itself to do. And Sidney Poitier is again, like 
very laced up and his like big explosion is about racism back in America. Um, but one reason I always found that scene sort of not convincing is just like, he's too laced up a character. Like his explosion doesn't make any sense because he doesn't explode about anything. Uh, whereas then watching sort of those same patterns repeat later in Van Peebles work, it's like, well, one, he's just not scared. <laughs> he doesn't care, so he just does it. Uh, but it also lets him go to just more interesting territory than like, well, yeah, being in love in Paris is weird. Um, it just, it is sort of a, a shocking thing at that moment. And it's like, it takes a long time before Hollywood can even like acknowledge that black people might be interested in each other or anyone really. Also when, sorry, I just wanted to make sure you had a chance to say whatever you were saying when I cut you off earlier. Oh, uh, I think I was just, I was thinking about sort of the thing that is really interesting formally about uh, Sweet Sweetback, because um, you had sort of mentioned the like editing of it is like present company excluded, uh, that that sort of like collage aspect where you are in a narrative space but are still bringing in all of these elements has sort of like, uh, not to my taste, but has disappeared from, from a lot of work that's been made after that, which is like also one of the things that's like most noticeable again to think about like, well, what comes after this is that a lot of his like formal brilliance drops out of what comes after this. And people sort of pick up a lot of the like emotional moves of it. But yeah, he has this like really collage-like and graphic, like graphic in the sense of images inside of them, not like just, although also graphic, but <laughs> uh, that like, really does elevate it and take it to like a different level, which is what's most interesting to me again about it's how successful it was and how well received it was politically is like you were saying, it's like, it isn't what I think like a lot of left cinema gets read today or the sort of strictures around it today where it's like, well, you know, in order to make left cinema, what we need is we need to see the dispossessed. Uh, we're gonna know that they're a good guy. And then we're gonna do some like really hardcore social realism and it's just going to be shot like perfectly fluidly and you're going to learn so much about defeating the bosses and or police and like yeah there are elements of that here but just like I mean it's it's down to there's that you know that shot that like always sticks with me of the which is like a really minor thing in this movie but of the um sawhorse with the caution thing on it that shot at like sort of an askew angle looking up into it and it's like it really is just sort of like a graphic element in the frame that like is actually just working on it aesthetically rather than again in this like direct well in order to teach the audience this and that's like I don't know that's something that's always been very exciting to me about this and about its perception is that it actually is operating in like a totally idiosyncratic artistic vision but again like you're saying like is speaking so clearly on another level that people pick it up everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are other elements that he's tapping into that are just familiar. I mean, instantaneously, once everything goes down and the sort of narrative takes off, I mean, any black person watching is going to go, you know, associate that with a slave narrative runaway. So he's also has a background in terms of, you know, this sort of uh, black folklore with his Br'er soul character, where he's very much also looking at, you know, Br'er Rabbit, and I would say, you know, using Sweetback as this thing. And so I don't know that the dialogue's even needed a lot of the time because it's so deeply embedded in the, the symbolism. I think on, on that level, I think sometimes um, it's not treated at 
the sort of like work of high art that it is because it's so, you know, about taking symbols and moving them around and mixing them up. And there was a lot of that happening in sort of art in LA at that time. Um, and so, you know, I feel like it just like kind of fits into all of that in a way that doesn't always require dialogue, but it's also, it almost, you know, reminds me of like old Soviet cinema in that it's almost like for an audience that's just having this visceral understanding, they don't need to read a history book. They just kind of like get that. So like that dangling character, right. Holding on by a thread like that, that means something to people who have been through a lot. I think it, it operates on that level so consistently, you know, it's really, it's, you know, amazing in that way, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't know, there's like, there's something to that too about what you're talking about, about like the way once they're on the run, you immediately are tapping into these other visuals. But it's like, I think you were saying earlier, Clint, you know, it's like he takes this situation, like it's so common in Amer like American cinema loves people on the run. Hopefully like two beautiful right. people who have to kill people. Um, but I think like what he did really well is like, he poses the really simple question of like, well, who actually goes on the run in America? I mean, it's not even clear why he kills the cops. I mean, of course, it's framed in a way that you think it's because, you know, he can't stand Moo Moo getting beaten up. But there's hardly any emotion on his face. I mean, that's what I was struck by. That he doesn't speak much. He's just like almost poker face throughout. You know, he's almost like, I mean, he's like a phallus, like you were saying, Ephraim, you know, he that is kind of the only active thing he really does until that point when he loses it or or something happens to him. Um, and it's shot so interestingly too, like you don't actually see the cops, you just see him uh, in these like beautifully dark shots, you know, the saturated like red of the fake blood on, you know, the handcuffs. It's just, there's just something abstracted from narrative and from psychological motive to him but it's just so cool how he how he figured out these like incredibly beautiful solutions to like not having enough money to like make this a realistic scene you know like so you have this like this blacks this dark scene you're right with like a light kind of moving around a little bit and you kind of catch glimpses of what's going on you hear it all in the soundtrack but like it's really just it's really that's that scene really was was cool yeah uh, and that end with the story of a three-day pass, I, when I look at his work, it's like just like so efficient, you know, mm -hmm. um, like there's nothing getting wasted. Um, you know, he often doesn't use a second camera or reshoot. He'll just optically print something and change the shots around. And like, it's always like, whenever I think like, oh, how do you do this? Or if you had a budget, it's like, I look at those two films and it's like, he just finds a way every time. A couple of years ago, there was a restoration of um, Sweetback, and they showed a 35 print at uh, the Museum of the Moving Image. And I was amazed at how much information there was in those frames. And I thought, <laughs> this is one of those things where they're making it look better than it was originally. Um, they're going in and pushing uh, the images or, you know, because so many films, we watch our versions of them. And even yeah. watching this more updated version of Three Day Pass, it's like, well, they're totally things that just like that's the version that I've seen. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, I think he was very aware of what he was doing, even shooting on, on 16 millimeter um, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But uh, but in any event, yeah, so resourceful and so like no waste. Everything gets used and just getting creative with it again. Those dark scenes, just like optically printing some psychedelic stuff in the back, you know. Just, right, right. Why not? You know, um, yeah, there's those yeah. shots of like uh, oil derricks or something. And then right. the. the the like, image reverses, the colors reverse, and then there's like they're 
blue and yellow and just have these kind of like he just seems so open to whatever ideas (laughs) but but it somehow figures out a way to kind of focus it all and make it all kind of serve this underlying purpose you're listening to the film comment podcast last week we launched the brand new film comment letter It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing, including features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The first edition of the letter featured an essay by Molly Haskell on her experiences of moviegoing across the years and a tribute by Sheila O'Malley to the late, great Monty Hellman's two-lane blacktop, in addition to some exclusive streaming picks and recommendations. Sign up today at filmcomment.com to have the letter delivered to your inbox every week. I mean, maybe this is a good time also to, uh, you know, go a little deeper into story of a three-day pass, um, which is in black and white. So some, you know, the flourishes are maybe not as much with color, but, you know, it's also very economical and it's very sleek, but it's so... um, it feels so complete still. I mean, that's what I'm kind of taken aback by, you know, it's low budget, it's independent, it's avant-garde filmmaking, but it never feels patched together. I mean, story of a three-day pass is, uh, it's about this soldier, this American soldier who's posted in France and he gets, uh, you know, he wakes up one morning and he has a feeling that he's going to get a promotion and he looks in the mirror and his reflection says that, you're going to get a promotion because you're the, you know, bosses, the commanders, like good little colored boy or something. The implication being that, you know, you're favored because you are, you know, you, you, you'll never do, you'll never step out of the line. You'll do whatever he asks you to do. You're respectable in all the right ways and, uh, and sort of taunting him for that. And that's precisely what happens. He gets a promotion and he gets a three-day pass uh, before he, I guess, starts um, his new gig. And he can, you know, do whatever he wants in that time. So the character, he goes out, you know, takes a tour of Paris. And I I thought that really the film in many ways is like one of those flaneur films. And it's like one of those films that really about a character discovering one of these classic cities. You know, it has a very breathless, like Godard, breathless element to it just a uh again a beautiful collage like sequence set to jazz of him exploring paris and then basically he picks up uh a woman a white woman at a dance club and they have this amazing little flirtation and they decide to go to the beach to spend the weekend uh and and basically i mean a lot of stuff happens now that i'm (laughs) describing the plot i'm like that was one hour, 26 minutes. And it is so dense. Like every yeah, episode like of this 20 minutes there. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like every episode I'm describing actually has so many little scenes and sure. details. And the main point is that he goes on this beach vacation and he is spotted by, I guess, three of his white colleagues, fellow soldiers who report him to the boss and um, he gets demoted and basically punished. One thing that wasn't clear to me was like, obviously he is punished for being out with a white woman, which the interracial relationship is frowned uh, upon. But the, but the commander frames it 
as like some kind of technical violation, right? Like you, you cross the two mile boundary or whatever that you're allowed to travel uh, while on a pass, which I thought was very interesting. I mean, it is presented at, as both like a very explicit, but at the same time, a reason that's um, quickly sort of covered up. And it also bring, it also just made me think of like, no one, not many people he encounters in France, although there is that hotel clerk, but they don't seem to have such a rigid attitude, you know, such a judgmental attitude about his relationship, but the military somehow won't even let him like spend a day on the beach. Uh, well, they're American, the right? Woman. The, the, the yeah. his commander is, or whatever that guy's rank yeah. is. Yeah. Well, I feel like there's like a lot to unpack there in that it's like, you know, yeah, to your point, uh, Clinton, that it's like, you know, his commander is American. He's on an American base, whereas when he's out in the streets, you know, it's the French people. But, I, you know, this is a film that I, I teach to, to students. Um, and one of the most fascinating things, I'd say maybe more than any other film that I've ever taught is... Um, Depending on your point of view, you're going to have a very different read of this this movie. And again, uh, this is something that that I I know that he Melnick was very much dealing with. It. And so you know he's very concerned with representations of black masculinity. And this is the whole thing for him throughout his whole life and career. It's just like what does it look like? And getting into the subjectivity of of that um, in his own special way. And so. You know, I feel like when you talk, you know, you're the, the, the opening, right, where he's looking in the mirror and, um, and you know, his reflection is calling him an Uncle Tom. But he's also using like what would be like, you know, like certain black vernacular, right? So his, the person who's not in the mirror is this, you know, uh, sort of stylized version of himself, right? And then, or there are two stylized versions of oneself. Anyway, what's being illustrated in that, for me, it's like he's showing the double consciousness thing, right? It's a code switching thing where it's like, you know, he's talking in the mirror, say, like, hey, baby, you know, you're never going to get that thing, you know, or whatever. But then when he's like talking, oh, no, it'll be fine. Everything's going to be just perfect, you know. Um, and so he's doing that double consciousness thing. And what that does for the narrative uh, that's really beautiful in this film is like, you know that he every scene he's thinking there's the surface of what I'm seeing. There's what the white person's going to say. But then there's what they're really maybe thinking and going to do. And so throughout the film, you know, um, watching it from a black perspective, from my point of view, every encounter with every person is like, is it because I'm foreign? Is it because I don't speak the language? Is it race? Is it because so like the hotel clerk is it's like, well, maybe it's just because they're not married and that's off season. Right. But maybe there's a racial component, right? And this keeps happening again and again and again. The bartender, like when he, that's, I remember the bartender like asked him if he wants something and he kind of hesitates and looks at him. Yeah. And that anxiety, it's like an anxiety that you kind of see him grappling with. And, and even when there's that um, performer at the bar who in Spanish calls him, black or I mean uses a word uh that basically refers to him as as black and you know he interprets it as a slur and there is a little bit of you know you're you're not sure if it was meant as a slur if it was a linguistic thing and it really makes you think like um you know this is the kind of everyday anxiety that then gets maybe painted as aggression right like oh you're just 
you're flying off your handle for something so small, but you actually don't know, even as a viewer, I don't know if it was really meant innocuously, you know, if I, and that slippage is kind of very, I mean, it's very discomforting. That's kind of where a lot of the films like psychic complexity comes from. He's just, he doesn't know how to react. You know, he doesn't know how to react because he constantly has to modulate his reactions based on who's perceiving him. That sequence is just like so brilliantly done for that to place like the direct, the only really like direct offense in the movie in the mouth of a Spanish singer in a French club talking to a man who doesn't speak French that well. And the guy doesn't really seem to speak English and his date doesn't really speak English that well. And like, there's, I mean, the continuation of it after he like explodes it to him and they're going out after and she's trying to explain that even though she doesn't speak Spanish that well, that he didn't mean anything offensive. And it finally settles on where he's like, she's like, well, no, he just said that I have big eyes and that you're black. And he has that line as they're like walking away on their backs. So he's like, well, how could anybody use mean black as a compliment? And it's like, I mean, that statement alone is just like, well, it just like, it, it, it makes you revise also your reading of the whole thing too, because it's like, oh, well, now you're asking yourself, is there anything he could have said that would not have been read this way? And it just, it's just like, it does, it does a great job of like at every moment in the sequence, shifting your understanding of what's even being said and how you're supposed to read it and also how he's reading it. Yeah, I, I, I agree in that, you know, and he leaves it open, you're right? This is like going on throughout and it's like, that's the moment where it, it spills, you know, it goes overboard for him and he just can't right take it anymore. And what I love about that scene, and it comes at this really sort of like important moment um, where it, it, it's building up to this thing where that, that um, happens, it's like from that point on, you know, there's, there's like, you know, many more shifts it doesn't just kind of like hinge on that being that this one moment and so again it's this constant thing but to this whole other point of like you're saying this double consciousness where he's like well how could anyone meet you know think black is a compliment and that's the part that actually like is the most like striking and painful for me because mm -hmm. again it's back to that double consciousness thing where he himself is like and then it goes back and you know i think the thing that it's almost like the elephant in the room with this film is like it's a film where a black man goes out with a white woman and like has a great time and gets away, you know, like nothing awful happens. It's almost like that's not allowed to happen, right? It's like, I came up in the jungle fever era and it was just like, you know, where it's like tried to scare the shit out of you about these things. I grew up in a place where there's interracial dating. So I knew the reality versus how it seemed in, a, in that film. But when you look at this, it's like you, these things are happening um, but it's not all good. It's not all bad, you know, and, it, and it, it's complicated. And he has his own sort of like struggles with with race that are factoring in. So there's that moment. And then when I kind of look at it, like kind of in a sort of French New Wave sense, and it's like this film where it's like, oh, man, I guess I'll backtrack just a little bit. Like my introduction to the film uh, was from Sweetback. Back in the day, I would mm. go to the video store and rent the VHS of Sweetback. And it would have like the Xenon or whoever was distributing trailers for all the other movies. And there was like a several trailers for Mellow Van People's one. And I remember the trailer distinctly for, for um, Story of a Three Day Pass. It almost read like to my like 18, this is like late 90s, 19 year old mind, like borderline feeling pornographic because it's like nothing bad happened. And it's like, he's just dancing. And it's like, wait, there's like this movie with this black guy who's in like 
he's having a good time with a white woman in Paris and that's it, you know? And that's all that the trailer gives you. And so in that regard, it was fascinating to watch it now. And it's like, well, what makes it so that it's not this like optimal ideal time? And it's like, well, that's the reality of being black. You can't just go to Paris and wander around and not even things that might have nothing to do with race, maybe or maybe not. But it's like you can't even really go there because it's like like we can't answer the question. Right. Does you know what was meant in that? Uh, sort of exchange and so again that's some of the stuff that just like for this particular film that's like that he just kind of like went there and it's like a romance thing in the context of 68 and all of that um that you know it was like kind of like watching it I think the first time I watched it, it was kind of like so when is he going to get like beat up you know or like when you know or you know when when does she get raped by some white guys or some some crazy shit you know and it's like he just like kinda... a hate crime had to yeah when the three guys are like coming into town and they're singing that song in their car and like like his three uh fellow right. soldiers and i'm just like oh god i was i remember being like oh no like something these guys are trouble i know i was like these are like proud boys or you know <laughs> just... and i think also the way he gets demoted reflects that and that it's like more of like the military did present itself as being like, you know, on the up and up, but was also very racist. And so it's like, that's exactly how that probably would have happened. Kind of like to like what Blair was saying, or like handled by certain liberals, that would have been made, you know, it's like, and now we, we saw you do this thing and that's not, all, you know, but it's like, oh yeah, like, you know, you didn't fill up the gas tank. So, you know, you gotta do that thing, right? And it's like, wait a minute, Bobby Joe didn't do it. You know, that's how this stuff works. And so, which again, it just adds to the sort of, pain uh i'll stop i just want to the one thing i wanted to add just last part about that ending um it's ambiguous about race and he has all these things but i just love the fact that what ultimately is like the liberating force of this character is a group of like black church ladies from back home i just like it's one of the most touching things in any movie i just love that whole and it's so funny. It's just such a great, great movie sequence. It's like, oh, I said to bring it up. You can just imagine her going in and scolding the commander and coming out <laughs> with a piece of paper. You know, it's so sweet, actually. Um, I'm interested to hear what you guys make of. So I also, the editing in this movie is is really like incredible. And then like, just like in Sweetback, I feel like there's these things that he does that are kind of out of nowhere that just add a whole nother dimension to what you're watching. And in particular, there's like, it kind of builds to this crescendo of when he actually sleeps with the white woman. And then there's these inserts. I mean, first of all, there's the fantasy sequences. And that's like speaks to what uh, what you were talking about, Ephraim, like this double consciousness idea where they both kind of, where you see them both kind of imagine, or maybe it's him imagining what she, what he thinks she thinks of, of him. But um yeah, I just there's well, this... we should we should mention what Go happens ahead. in the sequences because I mean that's yeah. very very interesting. <laughs> it's, yeah, 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 it's like I don't know that that is like to get back to sort of what you were saying too about like how it feels like very especially compared to Jungle Fever feels like sort of very straight ahead and optimistic, but like their actual sex scene is so troubling, it's so uh, weird because it's like so it cuts into this fantasy maybe each of their fantasies or like some it's it's really sort of unclear but like his fantasy potentially is that he is some kind of aristocrat like this <laughs> european nobility he's got on like you know the big floofy things around his like wrists. a tri corner hat exactly Are they and like, back, right? exactly and he like goes into you know the big you know uh, chateau or whatever and like 
beds her in this like lovely canopy place. Um, and then she, meanwhile, is having this fantasy uh, where she's, you know, in some woods and all of these black guys in like loincloths and animal skins and spears and like feathers on their head show up and surround her and like take her to some like weird edifice where it seems like maybe they're going to sacrifice her or something. Uh, and then our like main guy shows up as one of these guys and like pins her wrist down, but then leans in and kisses her and it cuts back to their sex scene. And then the sex scene itself is like intercut uh, with like all of this footage from the time. There's like what looks like weird protests that like pop up for a second. Like it's really like Vietnam. Like Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, Vietnam is in there. Like violence and meat. Yep, the, like chopped me. It like it just yeah. The whole sex scene actually like, in spite of that, the actual images of them having sex are like quite lovely and look perfectly pleasant. Of them like nibbling at each other's necks and like his hand across her back. Everything around it is just like I get. So you're saying filled with like this double consciousness and like is tying like them having sex to like global events and like imperialism across Southeast Asia. And then like what's actually most disturbing is that so at the end of all of that and like knowing the history of like depictions of interracial romances, you're expecting again, like the big catastrophe. And in fact, they have like a fine time. I mean, and they fall like, in really, love, right? Yeah, I it mean, forces it back onto you then in a way where you're like, well, are they happy? Cause they seem happy, but like the movie doesn't even let you play that straight. I mean, I think they even have like sex again after that. Yeah. Like the pace, you know, probably, like, you know, it's like a more intense, like physical thing after that even. Um, yeah, again, I think that's classic Melvin Van Peoples in that it's like sex is weird and he's putting it out there. You know what I mean? And that it's like, and again, I, I it, it's like, kind of like, oh man, you go there and then like something has to happen. I think that's just the most impressive thing. It's almost like when they're riding on the thing with the guy with the bale of hay it's like mm-hmm. that when I remember seeing that first, I'm like, oh, this is where it's going to go down. He's going to like take them somewhere. It's going to like stab them with a pitchfork. And you know, it's like nothing happened, you know? And I was like, wow, you know? Um, and in fact, if there's someone who's the sort of like guilty party in the end, it's, it's not, you know, him at all. This was the first time that I watched the film and I uh, noticed something I'd never noticed before, which is when they're riding to the beach in the car, there's this foreshadowing uh, that I was aware of the foreshadowing of her saying, well, you know, sometimes I call out from work. Uh, but she says, uh, they always give me three days off. Um, and it was the first time that it occurred to me that it's like the story of a three day pass applies equally to both of them. They're both people who have this like exemption from these sort of like people who hold power over them, you know? Um, and so this is the whole thing and it helped. And she's a clerk. Stuff. She's like a clerk at a store, right? Like, right. Yeah, job. right. Like she's exactly. this kinda... She has a whole tirade about how she hates work and, um, you know, that was interesting too. Uh, going back to the sex scene, I think, you know, obviously in the movie, you are rooting for them, right? Like it makes you kind of go, even despite your anxiety, it's like, you know, what's the big deal? It's these two people want to have a good evening. You know, the military can't do this. Like there are two young, attractive people and I want them to end up together, right? Like I want nothing bad to happen. I want them to end up together. But then those fantasy sequences, <laughs> they are so disturbing. And I'm just like, she seems nice. And she <laughs> seems, you know, but that's the thing. Like desire and sex is complicated by race and by politics. And 
she's obviously, you know, defined in her in her own way, I guess, um, you know, or she's portrayed as defined in her own way, especially when she tells the hotel clerk, uh, you know, it's going to be one bed and she's very much um, mm. being assertive and wanting to pursue this relationship. She clearly doesn't understand like why it could be a big deal for him. But she's generally this uh, person who seems very pleasing and pleasant. But her fantasy is so disturbing, this like, you know, African tribal thing. And it doesn't even, it's not even resolved. Like you were saying, Blair, like, is it, does it have some like violent aspects, you know, some submissive aspects? Like she, she's like fantasizing about being captured and like handed over to him. I don't know. It, it, it like then, it's complex because it's not like it's saying like these people shouldn't be together or any or anything, but it is also like cracking that fantasy of, you know, they could fall in love, right? The military could not take any action. They could just like have a beautiful evening, but he'll still be a black man in this relationship. And he'll still be a black man with a white woman who doesn't really understand maybe her desire, like how her desire for him is caught up in all these other webs. And it seems that maybe she'll still get sick again, too, based on the ending, too. Like, Well, I mean, that's the thing. I think it is. It does. That part, I think, does for me reach the resolution because of the ending, right? Where uh, finally, right, he's like, he. it's in my mind, it's not a story of their love. It's a story of his love. He falls in love with her. But at the end of the day, you know, he's laboring and waiting you know in this you know prison to to go and sure enough she's like off on another you know vacation or whatever she's out sick again uh which to me implies like maybe you know she's like a serial like she's just down with black guys because that's a thing and i mean again being a black man that has been in these experiences like these are the things that that happen and it's just refreshing in the a film where it's like oh she's the like player right and and that she's represented as this, like, you know, like, very nice, like, you know, like, white girl. And, and, and she has these, like, you know, oh, her, what, she would have a weird fantasy. But it's like, that's, that's how whiteness operates, you know, and that, that's the sort of thing. And so I, I think, you know, that it was super, super intelligent, you know, uh, on the part of Melvin Peebles to have, well, A, he also, he breaks out the cliche where lovers run across a field and everything. <laughs> Yes, he runs to the phone and uh, only for her to not not be there. And he's the one who's kind of left hanging, you know, with his feelings, uh, like genuine, you know, feelings um, um, hurt. And so I feel like it's a sort of film that's kind of like does the judo move where it starts out with him totally like it's he's on a mission, right? He's like at the red light district. He's at the strip club. Like he's just like on that mission only to find himself, you know, caught up emotionally with someone who seems like this humble, meek person that's totally like, she just bagged another one almost, you know, it seems like by by the end. And um, also just, you know, another thing that maybe we could talk about, um, which as far as I know, in terms of what was happening with that direct address uh, that happens throughout, and the scenery meets the, 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 the double dolly shot, right? Mm -hmm. Again, you know, I grew up in the Spike Lee era where it was like, that was his signature invention, not a signature move. It was like, he, that, yeah. <laughs> it was like, wait a minute. Not only was it, I've seen it in other films, but it's like the actual godfather of black cinema did it in his first feature. And we, I've never, like, I was like, I think I discovered that this had happened, but 
In all honesty, I guess it's still stuck that way that Spike invented it, even though it's like, right, it's still, it's, what? <laughs> yeah, it's like, wait a minute. It, and it's not even like it's kind of like the same shot. It's, it's the shot. The <laughs> shot. It's the literally exact, the shot. You yeah. Know? yeah, it's the thing, you know. Anyway, yeah, another another brilliant, efficient movement, you know. And again, the double consciousness thing, you know. It's like There's, you know. there's something interesting you just said, though, because I had never actually read it as... Like, I mean, I, I did read the end as like, all right, she's off, but uh, but not as like, it's the story of him falling in love, but that does make the actual, like, I love you scene even more fascinating. I mean, I love any scene that shot in almost total darkness. And I just think all movies should have at least one of those. Uh, but so like in that scene where they're in bed again and it's shot in almost complete darkness, except the light coming in through a window and you can't really see them. And he tells her that he loves her. And there's this pause for a minute. And then she gets up and walks so you can see her now because she's in the window, but her back is to the camera. So you can't actually see her face. And she responds in French, I love you too. Which like, that always stopped me dead that I was like, all right, you guys do speak English. It's like, it's interesting that you're like expressing this to each other, not in both languages, but just each of you in your native language. And it's like, I don't know, the argument that it actually just is about his being in love makes that scene even more interesting because he doesn't give you what everybody is like taught to give you in a love scene, which is, well, let's cut to the face and show you the emotion. And in fact, he keeps you away from the whole thing. And like, by the time he actually gives us their faces, it's actually just the argument about whether or not he's gonna get in trouble. And like, that's the only time then that we get to see her emotion in that scene. Yeah, and in that scene, he he also starts saying things like, and I'll come, and he's like, he's gung-ho. He's in. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll figure that out, you know. So, again, watching it, I, I've probably seen this film 30 times, and it's like, when I watch it, it's almost like that's my, it's like etched into my, that's my read, mm. like that she's yeah. totally like, it's like, I don't think this is the first black guy that just, <laughs> like, you know, um, went on a, you know, little thing. She's like, oh, yeah, Normandy's nice, you know, no place out there, you know. <laughs> It's like, um, you know, Melvin people, you know, he was famous, famous, you know, famous ladies man or whatever you say. Uh, uh, and so I, I, I do think that there's a certain amount of like him kind of um, perceiving himself as the thing that's like exotic and desired in, in that way. And that so I think it's like actually something that um, does interest him this idea that the woman is the sort of like one that has the sort of in some ways like upper hand. I mean, again, you see that in uh, in Sweetback, right, where with the, 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 the Hell's Angels, right? And it's like this like woman that's like gigantic and much bigger than him. Um, and it's Who this lifts the Harley up, I think, with one. With right, one right, she lifts the Harley up above her head. <laughs> right. All these things. And so I feel like there's this constant like kind of like battle of the sexist thing. Although he doesn't do it uh, in either film, when it comes to black women, the relationship is quite different every time. Maybe problematic and strange in some ways, but they're always a liberating force. It's never like this thing. It's always very clear what that relationship is. But I think with white women, it's it, it's almost like, you know, there's this power there that it's like this thing, like, you know, and she had that leverage with him. And so, yeah, fascinating, I think. When he actually picks her up at the dance bar, she's like his fourth yeah. choice. Or, you know, the fourth right. girl she uh, he asked, and, uh, you know, the first one who it seems like he's like in instantly transfixed by and there's a dream sequence where the crowd parts and they run and embrace each other, which actually is the classic scene where two mm -hmm. the man and the woman run towards each other, but it's a dream, you know, it's like, poof. 
And she actually says no. Her two friends say no. Another woman says no. And then the woman he ends up going with, Miriam, she also says no at first, but then, you know, she says yes uh, after that. And so there's, there is already this like kind of um, uneasy dynamic, I thought, because again, you don't know if these women are saying no because they don't want to dance mm-hmm. or they don't want to dance with him or they don't want to dance with a black man because Besides, all the women yeah. he asks are white. And so right there, there's like that uneasy, also like an approval, you know, he's also in some ways, it seems like, you know, seeking some kind of validation. I mean, he's also in conversations with Miriam saying things like, you know, my boss gave me a promotion because I, I he thinks I'm the kind of guy who wouldn't be out on a beach with a black, uh, with a white woman. So there's already for him, you know, this point to be made, you know, and maybe along the way he falls in love. I don't know. You know, there's like something happens where he maybe gets deeper into it, but his motives are not entirely like free of those desires to prove to himself that he, he can do the things that he's kind of been told. Yeah, I mean, he's wearing those sunglasses and trying to look like a, like this badass guy until and then like and walking around in these shades and then like the shades fall off and that's when he she like warms up to him. It's also interesting though to think about the uh, innkeepers or the guy at the hotel, whatever the bellhop guy, like his reaction if if she's a serial seductress. Like maybe he's like, oh, I know, I know, I know you. <laughs> All right, like let's just get this over with. Well, but in his his interaction is like, it's so perfect for the kind of complexity he has in this, which is he doesn't do anything bad. It's like, it requires you to in fact know a great deal about the world in order to read that scene that way, which like, obviously you should read that scene that way. Mm -hmm. But it's like, he asks a very obvious question you would ask as an innkeeper, which is, do you want two beds or what? Like, that's a very normal question to ask, except that like, because of everything that Melvin Peoples knows you're bringing to the movie, you're like, well, and then he does again, this great thing with language where it's like the stumbling block becomes not just forcing him to answer, like, are you going to sleep with this white woman? But also that he's like confusing Soleil for like sun with only for like bed. And so like, it's going back and forth where again, the moment where you have the direct confrontation, he doesn't just let you do the like, oh, well, what it is, is there's this like bad white guy and there's this great black guy. He like buries it in, they also literally can't speak to each other very well. It just like, it, yeah, it's this constant complicating of the like very direct reading where it's like, you know what's happening, but is it happening? And it's just kind of it's so effective as a portrayal of this person's experience of the subjective experience, you know, of this not knowing and and it constantly having to like figure it out, like or try to figure out. Yeah, I think that's like psychologically more insidious than knowing that someone's being bad or unfair to you right and that's kind of the position uh that he's constantly put in that i think a lot of uh black people and people of color are put in it's like is it me you know am i just (laughs) reading too you know am am i reading too much into this uh and i think that's what it it captures so well it becomes worse when you when there is that uncertainty and you're put in the position of deciding whether you're a victim whether you know you're uh, make casting aspersions on someone and um, you know you just there's not that space to just kind of be and take interactions at face value um, 
it's yeah and I, I also sort of want to go back to something you were saying that was like very interesting about it that like again that's like about the kinds of people he's choosing to show uh which i think like a lot of the more like official black cinema in the era would not have um in the thing you were mentioning which is like that he's like trying to prove himself by having sex with some white woman uh and like you know he's not the uncle tom uh which is like already sort of a very weird like i'm not the uncle tom because i'm going to sleep with a white woman which will prove something uh but again it's like it's sort of he's refusing to like the very straight-laced version of that that would have been much more popular the, the Sydney party at the time which would have been much more popular who is just like I'm out for love and I really hope that I find somebody that means a lot to me and he's like yeah I'm like out here cruising and hoping to pick someone up and go to bed with them because I've got 72 hours like let's make it happen uh which like again like the, the funny thing about her being the one who drops the whole thing is like that it sets up one reading and then flips it completely by the end because he's the one who gets lovesick over the course of it. Uh, and it, yeah, it just like, it, it, does, it does a very good job of never letting whatever is the first power referential in the scene be the only one in the scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it's almost like, for me, it's like the main preoccupation, at least in terms of the style of the directing, it's like keeping that levity in in place in that it really it's like um like I, every time i watch the film it's always so refreshing it, it's like it has this very like ephemeral feel like it really does like feel like he's like on this mission he has three days and it's like a, a story it's almost like i could imagine having like an old uncle that were like tell me about your time in the war and it's like man i went out this white girl was crazy you know exactly and it was like oh someone actually made that movie you know because these sorts of things were common and i have heard those stories often from jazz musicians that I've met and like their mm -hmm. time in Paris and what that was like and and the sort of like ambiguity there um in terms of some of the interactions like yeah it wasn't all good it wasn't all bad you know the film I thought where it leaves we don't go oh man this guy is like now he's a broken soul right it's kind of like he's going to move on to something else she moved on to something else and that I feel like you know it's just he goes through I think great pains at a time it would have been very easy to like take it to some other place uh, to not do that and I feel like when I encountered it for the first time just like as like a film person like I just love movies I, I didn't yeah. encounter it in terms of like I was studying race and cinema or anything like that at the time it was like oh I love this guy's work and it felt like such a gift to like have cause like I at that time I'd never been anywhere like I'd never really I've been to like New York a bunch and Philly where I'm from I never left the country I never in so and there's always like that, that again, kind of the way that one immediately goes to these slave narratives with um, uh, Sweetback, you know, you go to the story of like every black person you've ever heard of going to France when you watch that <laughs> film. So it's like, that's James Baldwin, that's Miles Davis, that's Richard Wright, you know, it's, it's yeah, all like, these people. Every jazz like, musician, right? When, yeah. Right, when exactly. Every like, last one of them, you know. Um, stories like that. And, uh, and so I feel like that all goes in there and it's just a story like that deals with these things and it's not like crushing. It's like, okay, he had an experience they had this experience it was weird troubling and problematic and icky and life went on you know and i think for me that's like the greatest aspect of the film it's just like in you know and it's just like a sort of sweet funny yeah. story that yeah, doesn't shy away from any of the, the harsh stuff but still at the end leaves you like ah man like that you use the term bad. levity which i think is really like mm. that, that like lightness of touch but it also allows him to kind of like get to like step back and you can kind of and portray this the complexity at the same time. 
peel back those layers have fun just... with the filmmaking i mean yeah yeah it feels in the spirit of the new wave because you know it's like let's see what i can do with a camera and a couple people right, right. and you know some rolls of film and let's see how i can like cut this up and chop it up and you know capture the city uh and mix up modes i mean there's such a genuine spirit of of invention and um of resourcefulness of improvisation it's it's really uh i think it just stands out for that reason too um very much like already you see the the beginnings of an auteurist uh vision and he just uses all these these like visual and uh auditory elements instead of dialogue instead of like telling a story to tell this story and to create this complex the, and to to show this complexity of the, what seems to be a simple story instead of having because like a lot of the actors in this and sweetback are not uh good actors you might say but like he so there's not much dialogue they don't really like there's not a lot of like explanation it's just he's constantly just like pushing at the limits of what he can do visually in order to explore in order to like push the story forward to and, and tell the story um I think we might be reaching the limits of our time here, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to have the last word, and uh, I also wanted to ask about the music, the use of music in both of these films, especially Three Day Pass. I think like it's really interesting. I think it does a lot a, a similar thing to what we were talking about with the editing before the like the intercuts, um, the, those intercut images. Um, but I don't know if you guys have anything to say about that. Yeah, I mean, there's that. The scene that's like most notable for how they do that is, um, well, not most notable because he really does it throughout it, but uh, is when they're on their way to the beach and uh, they're having that conversation that is like really cut up between like really tights on her and a little wider. Um, and there's like <laughs> that sequence that keeps cutting back between uh, Miriam, you know, like saying, like just talking, just like giving sort of an explanation of her like feelings about things and like how she hopes the beach will be and blah, blah, blah. And then it like periodically cuts to like her hands on her legs and like adjusting her skirt and like looking down and looking up and smiling at her. And every time it does, the music changes too to these like really discordant notes and then comes back to it. Um, which is just like, it's really lovely. Like, I don't know, it's like, it's not the most elegant version of like oh i'm in a room and i'm like desiring someone but it is sort of the more honest version of it because like she's really talking kind of about nothing she's just like yeah it's like making conversation we're on a ride i just hope the like weather's good uh and he just does such a good job of cutting back and forth between that sensation and like obviously the reason they picked her up which is that he's like i'm looking at your legs it's like we're gonna go to a hotel for three days um it just yeah and it, it, this gets back to exactly what we've just been saying which is like if you explained to me that there was a movie about an interracial relationship during the sex scene, there are these like two bizarre fantasies and the actual sex is intercut with footage of Vietnam. I would be like, wow, that sounds really heavy. <laughs> it's going to be a tough one. Uh, it is just not, like, it's fun. And like the things he's trying are fun and very successful. And like, yeah, you wind up in this place where it's not a tragedy. It's just, you fall for someone and they disappear sometimes. He's sick for a couple of days and then, all right. Right. The other thing with that car scene, I always forget, and it goes on pretty deep into the movie. It's almost like the mm -hmm. falls out of the hotel before he realizes she's not a prostitute. Yeah. And that's a whole other thing. That's like, so it's like, right? This whole thing where he's like, how much? How much is this? How much? 
And she's like, oh, yeah, it's not a lot. Or, and then finally, it's like, oh, wait, I'm not a tour guide. Like, what do you? And it's like, they're almost there by the time he's like, finally, like, oh, wait, wait, this isn't something I'm paying her to go to this place and have sex with me, you know, so it's complicated. I also, with the music, I mean, I think with Sweetback, what she actually describes as an opera, right? When you look at the mm-hmm. full title, um, and 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 um, sort of through the past is that his, his use of music is always like operatic, you know, and way like over the top. It reminds me a lot like of like DJing, um, and that he but without any blends, it's just like straight cut cut, you know. So he's just like going back and forth on the fader, and I think that's another one of his more like efficient sort of things. And so it's just like all right, we don't have dialogue, so I have this, like, motif, right? And so it's, like, that blues riff, like, when you see the thighs and the body, it like, comes up at different times. But for me, the when I think of this film, like, the piece of music that really, um, like, I just, like, it's just, like, burned into my mind is that, like, piano riff when he floats across the club and that sort of contrast with his, like, cool version of himself and then right. when it cuts and then, like, those, like, jump cuts all around the... Um, club where they're dancing and they have their solo dance performances it's just like such a beautiful musical performance to that scene where it really does feel like like a dj set where he's just like chopping up these like you know two or three instrumentals and all these different kind of ways and it says so much about the character um and yeah i just think you know it's like brilliant piece of music i I don't think the soundtrack exists on 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 vinyls i think there's one single 45 anyway i'd have it if it was there but it's like Where's the vinyl? Oh, where's the vinyl? We need the vinyl. Yeah, whoever's listen, whoever listens to this, there's a there's a market. <laughs> I, I I was just wondering, and um, if anyone here had read the novel that this movie's based on, or any of his novels. I've tried to find it, uh, but I mean, I don't know if it ever got translated to English. Um, okay. And I've tried to find the original French version a bunch, and I've like never found mm-hmm. it in print anywhere. No, I mean, it's. Neither. I was just reading. I was reading just his Wikipedia page, you know, to re- refresh some details. And it's like he discovered that France would give temporary membership to the Directors Guild to writers. So he just moved. The, he like wrote four novels, or like wrote started writing stories or novels, so he could move there. And he didn't know French yeah. before he moved I, there. Like he moved there, learned French, and started writing novels. The guy is like. <laughs> A brain and all of that is easier to do than just being a black man in America exactly. directing like just be like I want to make a movie I'm talented like it's like you have to go through all of that you know it's like unbelievable yeah he literally learned French wrote novels and moved to France because like Hollywood wouldn't let him in I mean it's crazy the other crazy thing I mean this is unrelated and we can even cut this because it's totally unrelated. I know what you're gonna bring up it's Uh-oh. so interesting you have but he was to. A, in the, I mean you guys probably know this in the 80s he was an options trader on the, yeah, at the mirror, yeah, and he wrote yeah. it and he wrote a book a about book, it right? of, yeah. like a technical manual on how to do options trading yep. which is just like crazy yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like who is this guy <laughs> i do think that uh you know having watched these two films i can i can see the inheritance um the ways in which it borrows yeah, those techniques i was just thinking everyone including me has been asking you about the French New Wave and Godard, and we should have been asking you about Melvin Van Peebles. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a whole other conversation. I have a million other things, so we didn't get there. But uh, his interpretation, because I mean, in, in another way, it's like it's almost like the last New Wave film. Yeah. And uh, 
and Nicole, uh, I think her name is Nicole Berger, who starred in it, like she was uh, the star of uh, Shoot the Piano Player. Mm -hmm. I believe she died like not long. Yeah, in a car accident. And she was in Eric Romare's, I think, first Mm -hmm. short, as well as Godard's first short. Anyway, there's all this stuff, but it's like, yeah, but Mel, he was there, you know, he was (laughs) doing it. And so definitely, I think about very consciously all the time. But yeah, I feel like just the point I was going to say is like, when I teach this film, I teach it in a black film studies context, we're trying to even question whether or not something called black cinema exists at all. Is there such a thing, right? Mm. Um, and if so, what like what techniques are involved there? And what I really like to point students to is like, you look at Breathless, right? And he has this very arbitrary mechanical jump cutting, mm. right, to prove his point. Uh, but with that scene you're talking about, Blair, the jump cut as it relates to like the gaze and race and various other things about the new wave that he's pulling. It's just like so much like so clear that he's like thinking of formal concerns mm-hmm. as it relates to race. And the film is like a case study in like race and editing techniques and all these sort of things. And so, yeah, really, really brilliant, you know, um, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys both so much for joining. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.